0: Well, it's good to be with you. This is probably the most unique retreat, uh, certainly the chillest one so far that I've had to guest preach at because um, we're almost halfway through retreat and I have done absolutely nothing. So <laughs> it's been great. Um, but I am honored to be your retreat speaker. Um, thank you to Pastor Francis as well as the rest of the college staff for inviting me um, Pastor Francis is one of my favorite people on staff, so don't tell the other Lighthouse staffers, because if you do, I'll just, I'll just lie. Um, but I actually first met uh, Francis, like he said, at AACF and um, at Beacon Retreat when he was a freshman and I was the guest preacher. So that was, I think, about a decade ago. Cool. So I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Francis, dang, he went to UCLA when he was only eight. Uh, Yes, it's true. It's true. We'll just uh, ignore any other details, but it's been neat to see how God has matured Francis since then, grown him into the godly man he is, and I am glad to be able to count him as a friend, a co-worker, and one of my pastors at Lighthouse. As I'm sure you know, Francis is not only a gifted preacher, but a a wise and loving shepherd, and it's becoming increasingly rare these days where pastors both, and so you guys are really fortunate to have them at the helm. Well, it is my joy to be able to be with you this weekend and bring you the word, and I know some of you might feel ripped off that junior high and high school, they both have guest preachers, and here I am one of the pastors at Lighthouse. But before you um, get upset and boo me off the pulpit, let me explain. Uh, I was given the option of which of the three fellowship groups to preach for. And I actually chose a beacon. And um, there's good rationale for this. Um, like... Pastor Francis mentioned, I oversee Praxis, our young adult ministry, and so I thought this would be a good opportunity to introduce myself, get to know you guys, and if and when, Lord willing, you graduate and transition to Praxis, we'll have had build some rapport. And so I look forward to getting to know you throughout this weekend. Please forgive me if I forget your name or meet you multiple times. I'm just really bad in that regard. Um, But the second reason is because I used to be a college pastor. Uh, and I am convinced that this season of life is significant. It's so seminal in shaping who you will become. You know, in college, as many of you are experiencing, you're discovering who you are. You're starting to form your own convictions. And it's at this stage in life, we really need to lay a good foundation to examine the trajectory we're on, what we're living for, and who we're worshiping as ultimate. And the book of Haggai. Does exactly that. Um, We no longer have four sessions together to go through four messages delivered by the prophet Haggai. Um, So we'll go through three, and it'll be, I guess, a slight cliffhanger until I get invited again uh, (laughs) 10 years from now. Or, um, from my understanding, I think Pastor Francis has preached on Haggai too, so you can ask him or um, tell him to preach uh, the rest of Haggai. But This book, I still think, will be very profitable, very relevant for us because uh, what it teaches are timeless lessons. The book of Haggai is going to challenge us to consider our ways. To consider our ways. Have we oriented our lives around ourselves, our career ambitions, our relational desires, our conception of the American dream? Are we at the center of the universe? Or is God, his desires, his definition of the good life, central to who we are and what we're about? To summarize it, the book of Haggai asks, are we pursuing our own kingdom or God's? Are we pursuing our own kingdom or God's? And so for our retreat together, we're going to spend time studying this little book. Two chapters, 38 verses. But the book packs quite a punch. And so if you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to turn in them to the book of Haggai. If you need some help locating it, uh, just flip to Matthew and move back three books. And bam, you'll be right there, the book of Haggai. Uh, This morning, we're going to kick off our study by looking at chapter one, all of Haggai chapter one and kingdom priorities, kingdom priorities that as Christians our priority is God and his kingdom, not ours. But before we dive into the text, let's pray for our time. Father, we ask now that you would humble our hearts, that we would consider our ways. That as we peer into your word, it would be a mirror in which we can reflect and think through discrepancies, areas of our lives where, that are not aligned in, in submission to your authority to what you have revealed in scripture, and that you might humble us and therefore mold us to live in obedience to you, that we would prize Christ and it would be evident in our priorities and how we handle our lives, that we might be found faithful. And so use this word to pierce and leave us undone, that you might fashion and make us more like your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Haggai is in the Old Testament, and so it opens with a specific setting, a particular situation. Just look at verse 1. Follow along with me. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Sorry, wrong, wrong book that starts with an H. <laughs> that was uh, just to make sure that you guys, clearly you guys were in the right book. Okay, I have a confession. This is actually not my Bible, and that's why. Um, I had to borrow it, so I I understand my impression is just going down the toilet right now. (laughs) But Let us start over. We can strike that from the recording, please. Haggai 1 says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheolteal, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I mean, that's powerful, right? We can just close retreat right there. But this verse is actually important because it anchors us in redemptive history. It puts us in a specific context. The book of Haggai records for us the events during the reign of a king named Darius, which probably doesn't help much. We're introduced to more characters. We have Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel the governor of Judah, and Joshua the high priest. Now, if you're still lost, it's okay. We'll do a little recapping to bring us up to speed. I want you to rewind all the way back to the book of Exodus. You know the story, or the, the, you've watched the movie Prince of Egypt, right? Four famous words, let my people go. And God performs miracle after miracle to deliver his people. Why? To liberate them from Egyptian captivity. But not so that they can meander and do whatever they please. No, they are freed so that they can go out and worship the living God. And through the ten plagues, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, provision of manna and water in the wilderness, God faithfully leads his people home to the promised land. Now on the cusp of entering in, God provides final instructions. Put simply, there will be blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience to keep you, Israel, on the right path. And with that last exhortation and warning, the Israelites cross the border and they settle in the land. They're able to conquer their enemies and they begin to establish themselves as a nation. And God provides kings to govern his people. First is Saul and Saul as a many of us know, is a bad king because he doesn't fear the Lord. David soon replaces him, and though he is not without his own flaws, he is a good king because he is a man after God's own heart. Solomon is next in line, the wisest man to ever live. And the kingdom flourishes under his rule. It's a time of unprecedented prosperity and peace. And because of this, Solomon and the people can capitalize on the opportunity. They can build things no one else ever was able to. And this is crucial for our study of the book of Haggai. Because during Solomon's reign, the temple of God is constructed. And it's massive. It's decked out in gold, radiant in appearance. To broadcast a message to the ends of the earth, this glorious building is where the one true glorious God dwells. The heaven and earth converge here. You see, the temple was a visible manifestation of God's special presence, where he would commune with his people, where worship of God was essential, the linchpin to life. But Israel's golden era is a flash in the pan. And paradoxically, The wisest king foolishly goes after idols, resulting in his demise. And the kingdom is split in two. And so you have 10 tribes in the north that are collectively called Israel and the remaining two in the south called Judah. Well, Israel is led by a slew of bad kings, kings who turn from the Lord. So God judges. In 722 BC, God sends the nation of Assyria in this pagan empire to conquer Israel. Judah has a few decent kings to slow their moral decay, but they also succumb, eventually turning from God to worship false idols. And once again, God judges. In 586 BC, God sends the Babylonian Empire to invade and conquer Judah. And Solomon's glorious temple is destroyed. The Jews are exiled out of the promised land. The people of God are down and out. They have returned full circle, if you will. A deja vu of the Egyptian days. No king, no land, no home. Enslaved by a foreign nation in a foreign country. And time passes. And after the Babylonians, Persia rises to power. And the Persians are lenient. They want their subjects to thrive because it will only make their own name great. And a Persian king named Cyrus allows the Jews to return back to their land. He commissions the governor of the people, Zerubbabel, and their high priest, Joshua, to lead a remnant group back. The land is a mess, the temple a rubble, but the silver lining is the Israelites are given permission to rebuild. To rebuild. And initially, they embrace their mission with excitement. They get right down to work. But the project sputters and stalls when the surrounding people make it hard on the Israelites. Start persecuting them, spreading nasty rumors about them, threatening their own lives until the Jews, well, they just stop altogether. And for the next 15 years, get that 15 years, the temple of God sits untouched in its dilapidated and incomplete state. After Cyrus The next Persian king on scene is Darius, which is where the book of Haggai picks up. It's in this setting, under these humiliating circumstances, that God sends Haggai the prophet with a message. For the first time since exile, the people of God receive a word from the Lord. We'll title this next section God's Rebuke, verses 2 to 4. Look in your Bibles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God addresses this group as if he has no relationship with them. Notice he no longer calls them my people, like let my people go. He calls them these people. It's like when I get home from work and the first thing Barry says to me is, guess what your son did today? Now, should I be concerned that Barry has suffered amnesia and forgotten she is the mother to our son? No, it's a setup. It's a setup. It's very sneaky. I know what she's about to say next is something bad. She is distancing, disassociating herself from our son because his actions do not reflect her. They don't reflect her character. Your son called me a big booty brain, which I don't know, in my mind is a compliment. It just means your brain is huge, right? Um, uh, To this day, we don't know where he gets that stuff from, but it's a mystery. Here we find God distancing himself from these rebellious people, these people. They're not acting, why? In accordance with him with his character, behaving in a manner fitting of his splendor and majesty. God is creating a space that condemns. Why? Look at the gist of Haggai's message. He uses the same word for different buildings to draw a comparison. Here you people are saying, it's time to build and dwell in your paneled houses when my house, my house lies in ruin. Panel houses were nice and expensive. A ruined house is not. You see, back then, wood panels were a luxury because wood was scarce. Geographically, Israel was loaded with stones. If it was a tile in cellars of Catan, their graphic would just be this one giant rock. And so in order to get wood, the people have to travel hundreds of miles away, exert tons of time and effort to chop down the trees and to haul them back. Talk about supply chain issues. Yet the people are willing to spend themselves, to exhaust themselves, focus all their attention, energy, and resources on remodeling their homes with the finest cedar. all the while, God's temple, God's house, remains in shambles. And God sends Haggai to call the people out. Because they had done more than just neglect a structure or building. They had neglected what it stood for. God. His worship. And the state of these houses revealed who was really king. Who was sitting on the throne. Who was indeed the God of their lives. This is automatic conviction, right? It's not hard to connect the dots. Haggai's message isn't difficult to grasp. In fact, the simplicity is what seals our mouth shut. The rebuke nested in the rhetorical questions stings because the answer is so obvious, so obvious to us. And thousands of years have elapsed. But the principle is the same today. Beacon, we may not be dodging our responsibility to build God's literal temple, his literal house. But metaphorically speaking, there are a million ways we are pouring into our own kingdom over God's. We put our academic careers over his church. We place our reputation over his renown. We pursue money over his ministry. We prize our family over his. And the word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai. Is it time for you to obsess over your grades, to overhaul your wardrobe, to concern yourself with popularity, to build up your bank account while God and his purposes are tossed to the wayside? And we cringe at songs like Jesus Take the Wheel because the lyrics are just so bad, right? So Cheesy. It's like a lame pastor joke put to Melody. But we understand the sentiment. I think we all get it. That disciples, by definition, are supposed to follow. That God is supposed to sit in the driver's seat. But there is a great disparity between our knowledge of this truth and our living of it. Sadly, as one pastor put it, the soundtrack to many of our lives is, Jesus, get in the trunk. And I know that sounds awful, harsh, but the real pressing question we should be asking is, is it accurate? Is it true? Sure, as good Christians, we won't straight up ditch and desert Jesus, but we're not exactly handing him the keys. We keep him stored away. And when we're really in a pinch, then we'll let Jesus out to fix our problems. But once he's done, back into the trunk he goes. Friends, when we treat the Lord of Lords as our own personal slave, we have it severely twisted. Now, none of us, I imagine, would be that bold or articulate it like that. No, we are clever. We're masters at spin. We'll dress it up in godly language, right? Well, I'm just saving up money or I don't have money. But when I do, I want to apportion it for a missionary that I do know. Or, I can't make it to Sunday service because I had a late night praying for your soul. But I will stream the service later. But listen, this trick is as old as the Old Testament. Because that's exactly what the Israelites had done. Oh God, we are oppressed financially. People are hostile towards us. The labor is taxing. It's just not the right time to build your house. And God's rebuke is thick with sarcasm. Oh, I guess that makes sense. That's really cute. It's not time to work on my house, but it's time to work on yours. Fifteen years. Do you know how many houses you can build in fifteen years? And yet these people thought they could dupe God. They didn't flat out refuse the work. They just delayed it. Disguising their no with a not yet. And I think especially as college students who are prone to procrastinate maybe, we need to realize delayed obedience is still disobedience. It's just a subtler form. You want to know the right time to obey God? Now. Now is always the right time because now reveals your priorities. What or who you are willing to drop everything for that's why verse 5 is sobering it's a gut check verse 5 reads now therefore thus says the lord of hosts consider your ways we'll stop there this charge is repeated four times in the book of haggai think evaluate be brutally honest and consider your ways Look, I get it. I've, I once was a college student. We're busy people. There's rent to pay, assignments to finish, birthdays to attend, meals to cook, and shows to watch. But that's why we're here at retreat. To take a step back, recalibrate, refocus, to consider. No one is denying the necessity and even the goodness of a packed schedule. But chief over all the hustle and bustle, we are to seek first the kingdom of God. We don't disregard the blessings and responsibilities we have. But we do, though, make it our aim to please God in them. You see, the lesson in this passage isn't that remodeling our house is evil and prohibited. Uh, If it is, me and my family are in big trouble because... (laughs) Uh, We bought a place at the end of last year. We're doing some renovations before we move in. Uh, Pastor Francis did too. Sorry to throw you under the bus. I just didn't want to be alone. Uh, But the lesson here isn't that remodeling your house is sinful. The lesson here is have we given any thought of God? What He wants, what He is doing For my family, our remodel is not just about my comforts and preference for the kitchen layout or which bathroom finishes, but how can this be leveraged for the kingdom of God? How does moving into this neighborhood position my family to be ambassadors of Christ to the lost, to be closer to church community? How can these new appliances be used to cook meals for others? How can we organize our living room to be an inviting space for fellowship and prayer? How can we steward our remodel and everything we have to show that what we treasure is not a house, but him? And to my shame, I haven't always been the best at remembering this. I need to consider. And my guess is you do too. You need to consider. Not my kingdom come, but his. His will be done. Houses, school, gadgets, opportunities, money, relationships. These are gifts, even essentials, and they're not inherently bad. But are we seeking to honor God in what we do with what he's given to us? He's freed us from the bondage of sin, not so that we can live in our own little cushy kingdoms, but to redeem everything for the cause of our Redeemer. And I think this has immediate implications for you, Beacon. Just even as you try to select a major or as you weigh your future. Some of you should be lawyers. Not just because it's a prestigious, high-paying job, but because you'll be able to advocate and defend the weak. And then tell of the one who has done the same for you. Some of you should be doctors. Not just because your dad was or because it's a high, uh, stable profession but because the great physician healed the body to speak to the soul. Maybe, dare I suggest, some of you should consider full-time ministry or missions. I'll leave it at that. The point is this. Your occupation is not as important as who occupies your heart. And what you decide to major in is just one small slice of the entire pie. We should be repeating this exercise for our family dynamics, how we spend our weekends, what we watch for entertainment. Let me be blunt. Is God and his kingdom part of the calculus? Is he even on your radar, college students, a factor in your decision-making? Or is he an afterthought? Because look at how God intervenes when he's ignored. God calls a timeout to review how the game is going. All right, let's take a closer look at the situation. You're so bent on building your own kingdom. How is that going for you? Verse six. So consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The returns don't match the investment. The people have labored in planting, feasted on food, drowned themselves in drink, robed themselves in the best clothes, only to find themselves frustrated, lacking. The alarming sense of this one verse is utter Futility. And it's left the people puzzled. Why is it like this? What is going on? Well, you jump down to verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And, you went, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and i have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain the new wine the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors god is stepping forward and raising his hand i'm guilty i'm the reason you have come up short and unsatisfied as committed as you are in the success of your life, so I am just as committed in your failure. And that is terrifying. There's nothing scarier than having all of your efforts spoiled because God directly opposes you. And yet this is what we find here. The reason for this is explicit. Because you have busied yourself with your house instead of prioritizing me in my house. One commentator wrote, "When it came to their own interests, the people exerted a flurry of activity, but when it came to the Lord's interests, they would not lift a finger." As a nation, it's clear as day. Israel had forsaken their God, and the consequences were evident. Remember from the recap Blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience is exactly like the ones they were enduring. Times of famine, drought, and fruitlessness. The heavens were shut, the land barren. And the irony is this. God tells them, nature does a better job at listening to my instruction than you do. But friends, this is grace. As brutal as this is, this is grace. Because God reproves not just to crush His people, but to get their attention, to bring them back. Listen, you don't want to get everything you want. You don't want to get everything you want. I think of my wish list when I was a kid, and I just shudder at the thought. You know, uh, I just wanted Sour Belt candy, baggy pants, and rap music. And I shake my head at, what a fool I was, thinking this is what life is all about. This is what's crucial and indispensable to life. And a couple decades later, I had the hindsight, the wisdom and knowledge to now see how dumb I was. And yet, in our 20s here, how foolish are we to assume we know what's best for the rest of eternity when the infinite And wise God, who exists outside of time, is able to survey and assess everything. We're so myopic, while God sees it all. Sometimes God frustrates our pursuits, not because he wants us to suffer, but because he doesn't want us to settle, to make shipwreck of our lives building it on sand instead of the rock, on the cornerstone of his kingdom, Jesus Christ. Calls students, God wants what's best for you, namely himself. What is eternal life? To know God and the one he has sent, his son. Augustine is famous for saying, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. So God doesn't punish his people for no purpose. It's to restore, to beckon them. God rebukes so his people return. And briefly, the second section for our passage. From God's rebuke to the people's response. The people's response. Back up to verse 7. And we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Here's how the people are to respond they're still tasked with the same duty. God doesn't change his commands, he compels us to. And repentance will prove itself in obedience. We need to watch how this unfolds. Uh, We can jump down to verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Now, what I want you to notice is the object of these verbs in verse 12. The people now obeyed the voice of the Lord. The people feared the Lord. Verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This is significant for the proper response. The work now, the work is no longer divorced from the person. They're not fixi- fixating just on how they dropped the ball or how they messed up, but the one that they have offended, the one that they have wronged. And this makes all the difference. This prevents us from merely going through the motions. They behold God. Their sorrow moves them to obedience. And it's immediate, immediate action. They go up, chop the wood and labor. But verse 14 underlines the sequence, the order of events. Their spirits were stirred to work. Their hands followed their hearts because humbled hearts produce eager hands. And I love this. Because of their obedience, God assures his people four invigorating words. I am with you. I am with you. See, the moments we think we're alone are precisely the moments we're likely to cave under pressure or be distracted from kingdom priorities. Evangelism is terrifying to us because we think, well, it's on me. It's on me to convert this individual, this unbeliever. Or we stress about exams and what's beyond college because we assume I have to figure this out. It rests on my shoulders. Or we buckle when heckled for our faith because we think to ourselves, man, I am targeted. I am isolated. If there are strength in numbers, we feel weak alone. But in every endeavor we take up for God and his kingdom, he is with us because that is where he is at work as well. I am with you. I am with you. This is the only fuel needed to keep the people going. What about you? Is that incentive enough to stir your spirit towards obedience? Because God's promise still echoes true today. These four words ring again in the New Testament. I'm sure you know them, that they sound familiar. Matthew 28, 1920, the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's a lofty mission statement. But here's our comfort. Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. God calls these Israelites to go to the hills and bring the wood. God calls us to go to the nations and bring good news. God calls them to build His house. God calls us to be His church, to tell and teach everyone to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is still kingdom work to do today. And you know what is cool about college? You don't have to go very far to be obedient. It's almost as if the Great Commission comes to you, to your campuses. Now, you should still consider you know, going overseas for missions, my, my bad, Seichi and Alessandro. But college is a unique opportunity because college is a melting pot of people just like you, searching for answers, figuring out who they are, what they're about, what they should prioritize. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord tells us, but the laborers are few, but we often overlook something that I think is so profound in that verse. So he says, the harvest, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Did you catch it? It's his harvest. It's his harvest. He's planted the seeds. He's watered the crops. He's done the work of the kingdom. Christian, your life, your own salvation is evidence of the fact that he's at work, that he is with you. And now he's inviting you to prioritize and participate, reaping in his harvest to enjoy the blessing of being with him and then bringing everyone else along. And the tragedy in our lives would be to miss the joy of his kingdom because we are too preoccupied with our own. Now, this is only the tip of the iceberg. As we continue for the remainder of our weekend in the last two sessions, Haggai will round out what this might look like what it would look like to prioritize God and his kingdom, but resolve this morning to spend time considering and living for his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we ask that you sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth and your word presents to us a glorious picture of your kingdom. Of how incalculable in worth it is. How precious it is. It is like a treasure hidden in a field which we we go and we find and we cover up. And in our joy, we sell all that we have to purchase that field. Or it's the pearl of great value. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts just the magnitude and the wonder of the gospel. That we have been saved. That you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all. Lord, there is nothing you would withhold for our good. And because of that, we understand that you are supreme. Lord, you reign on high. And it is our delight then to live for you. May that sync up with how we prioritize all that you've entrusted to us. From our school, to our time here at retreat, to our conversations and relationship with one another, to the food we enjoy, to the talents that you've given to us, may they all declare that our God is glorious and his kingdom is coming. We pray for your help for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.